I'm Larice Bell, and this is Evanston Rules. Ron Whitmore and I had the fantastic opportunity to chat with Dr. Alan Olson, the former superintendent of Evanston Township High School, District 202. Dr. Olson talks about his move to Evanston, addressing perceptions about the community, and candidly shares how he didn't let the initial impressions affect his belief in Evanston's potential. With this perspective, he committed to creating an equitable Evanston, embracing the differences that make him stand out. He's bold, courageous, and committed to the work. Dr. Olson is not just an ally. He's an accomplice in making Evanston even better. Happy New Year. The same to both of you. Alan Olson, welcome to Evanston Rules. You moved to Evanston more than 30 years ago. You had a baby. Your wife moved. Do you consider yourself an Evanstonian now? Absolutely. Yes. It happened for me. It happened pretty fast. Much of my career, honestly, was a little bit about ambition. What's next? What am I going to do? And I didn't think so much about my own ties within the community. But when I worked in Evanston, I realized it was really the first community as a school administrator, at least, where I lived in the same community. To have that simpatico between the work and where I lived five minutes away from the high school was just wonderful. It couldn't not become, from my point of view, part part of the community. You mentioned coming to visit Evanston, being in a taxi cab before you moved here. I'm going to start there because that's the start of your journey into Evanston in a way. So I had already been hired for the position of assistant superintendent at ETHS, which had its own controversial element at the time. And I was invited to come back to town and and meet people, get acclimated to the job, et cetera. At the end of that visit, the cab driver, you know, making conversation, asked if I was from Evanston, where he picked me up. And I said, no, we're going back to Boston where we lived, but we were going to move to Evanston that I was coming for a job. And I did not specify the job. And he said, well, you know, I've been driving this area quite a while. And he said, I have two words of advice for you. Take them as you will. But number one, don't have anything to do with that high school. And two, be sure that when you decide where you want to live, that you do not live south of Dempster. I quickly violated both of his pieces (laughs) of advice. Good for you. By the way, the postscript was we were in our favorite little neighborhood Italian restaurant. And And you're talking about in Boston. Yes, in Boston. And we had gotten to know the owners of the restaurant over time. And so they came over to say goodbye to us. And we told him we were going to be moving to Evanston, Illinois. And he said, oh, well, that's such a strange coincidence. The people over there are moving from Evanston. We said to the owners, so what do they have to say about Evanston? It was a white couple. And they said they were really glad to leave. I never found out why they were glad to leave, 
But I was coming to Evanston with this unsolicited advice from others that wasn't as positive that I hoped. And once you got here, how quickly did you find out that that wasn't true? Well, first of all, my my wife and I were very purposeful about wanting to raise our daughter in a multiracial community. We thought that would be very important for her and important for us. It struck me through the interview process and what I got to see in the beginning before I began the work was that Evanston held out tremendous unfulfilled promise in terms of uh, being a community that could be extremely workable. We rented first and before we bought, there it was clear to us that wealthier and white people generally were in Northwest Evanston, up along the lake. And it just seemed important to us to choose a neighborhood that would provide comfort and where there would be a chance for our daughter to be able to go somewhere where there was a mix of students, both in terms of socioeconomics and race. Alan, what year was this? I came in the fall of 1990. So we've been in Evanston over 30 years. As you got to Evanston in the early 90s and begin to kind of unpack the remnants of desegregation. I mean, we know there was a lot of work that you did in terms of ensuring that kids had access. But one of the questions that that we continue to grapple with is this gap in education. The conversations around a school in the Fifth Ward that have been happening since the early 90s, late 80s. And even well before. And well before, right? Right, Uh, after Foster School was closed. After Foster School was closed. Even when I was teaching at Orrington, we ended up busing kids from Washington that have had a thriving Latinx community that was making astronomical gains, but we bust the kids to the furthest north point of Evanston. Right. So from that lens, if my understanding about desegregation is about equity and access and opportunity, Mm -hmm. did work. Well, one of the most formative jobs that I had before I came to Evanston was from 1976 to 1979. And I was the deputy director of Boston University's desegregation work with the Boston Public Schools. And it was, as you know, that history a very tumultuous, racially charged time in Boston with lots of horrible, overt racism that, that was displayed. One of the takeaways that I had from that experience, white judges and rulers and leaders saw at the time, that desegregation would provide a really important social good, which they defined, I believe, building the supports and structures for society to emerge from Jim Crow and and live together and work together, if you will. So physically to be in the same spaces, So in schools, that meant finding devices, call it busing, call it other activity, magnet schools, whatever, that move 
kids of different colors into the same spaces. So I, I think it was about hitting that standard, if you will, of diversity and access with some sort of magical realism belief system <laughs> that that was going to be entree to equity. But if you go back and read those court decisions or think about even what Evanston did, it really was not about, I don't believe, it really wasn't about addressing achievement. And it wasn't about tearing down the barriers to achievement. It was as if everybody got to go to school together, everything would be better. And on, on one level, maybe it broke down some barriers for some about how they perceived other people and their willingness to be socially interactive with those people, at least maybe not have them over for dinner, but say hello on the street. But the, and I'm not saying it just sarcastically and tongue in cheek. I really think the intent wasn't there. And so the lesson, bottom line lesson is if you're not friggin' intentional about wanting to address achievement and the equity that's around that, as you put it, Ron, access and opportunity that's beyond just being in the space together, then you gotta really force the issue and confront others in in a way that at least gets a critical mass of people acknowledging that there is an existing inequity that's a problem. Charles Ogletree, all deliberate speed, right? Yeah. As a yeoman's job at really unpacking the travesty desegregated schools because there was no consistent plan to deal with bigotry and racism, right? And while the social construct of it clearly worked for some, there was actually no thought to how it affected those people of color. Not just of color, black and of color. Black and, thank you, black and of right. color, but that had to leave their communities, teachers losing their jobs. But when we look at Evanston, how by providing right. access to opportunity for these students in advanced placement classes in honors classes. Let's talk a little bit about that work and how so, you were able to move the needle. So when I got there, at some point in the 70s, there had been some side agreement that had been made with the board at ETHS that the position that I was um, awarded, the assistant superintendent, would be a position that would be held uh, by uh, a black, if not a black man. And and who said that to you? Well, it came up, frankly, in my interview. But certainly the one who made the most pointed comment about it was Denise Martin. Who became and a friend. Became a very good friend. Who became and an accomplice. <laughs> and an enormously wonderful colleague. And she was waiting, even in her position, in a really frustrated way, not to have allies among the white leaders to move that, that work. So my, my sense is that when I arrived, I had in one ear, if you will, the black administrators at ETHS, 
Um, and even some of the board members in their own way say that job one was addressing this inequity. And, and then just digging a little bit deep, I realized that on every imaginable measure, attendance, graduation rate, dropouts, A's and B's, class rank, college attendance, you go on and on and on. The Black students were at the bottom. At the time, we only had a very small number of Latinx students. We had 3% when I arrived there. But not only were those measures totally revealing of the circumstances, but nobody was really talking about them. So at least in my mind, the first thing that was required, tell the truth and tell the truth every day that this was not only a significant issue and problem that ETH has had to address, it was job one, plain and simple. And so on my first day as superintendent, in, in my speech to the staff, I said, it is our number one priority. And as long as I will have the privilege of serving you, it will stay the number one priority. In your first speech, you put people on notice. What was the faculty reaction? What was the white faculty reaction to that comment? And how did you deal with it? There, there were actually splits among white and black faculty about it. There were black faculty who didn't feel comfortable and told me so privately about shining a light and calling it out with exact verbiage about what it was because their belief and or experience was that that always led to some trouble uh, in some fashion that backfired. Throughout my tenure, talking about the achievement gap and using that term, there were folks in both communities, white and black, who at some point later in my tenure were saying, why are we still talking about this? Why aren't we ready to move on? But for the white community, Ron, in terms of answering your question, I, I would say that there was significant silence at first. There were a few. Did that shock you? Um, no, uh, of course not, because even if people thought they themselves that their self-perception is of being a great liberal and embracing this, I think there was an unspoken fear of what's this going to mean for me. But you, know, but you know, I'm sorry. Let me let let me cut you off. You that term. What, what did you what you called him? What self perceived liberal? I think self. Yeah, the. I mean, that is such a great term for Evanston, self-perceived, and you couched it based on their perception of getting their way. I'm a liberal until I get my way or, or until I don't or until I don't get my way. Right. It's, you know, never in my neighborhood. Right. So, you know, there was a great folk song back in the late 60s, and there was a line the chorus was, and I'm not going to sing because then you'll get off the phone, but it was... Give you something to talk about on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. It was, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. 
And the refrain would be, love me, love me, I'm a liberal until you move next door. And I, I, I think what a lot of white teachers, veteran white teachers, people who were perceived by students and families as really great teachers, I think what it felt for them is, what now? What's going to change? Who's going to rock my boat? Is somebody going to ask me to teach differently or teach different curriculum? I think another part of the silence was there had been white leaders at ETHS who had touched on these issues, maybe touched on them and then they'd gone away. And so there was also the skeptical you know, hey, is this guy saying this now? Is it going to last? Is it going to hold? So we heard something recently that rang true, and it is the hardest person to tell something to as a self-described is a liberal Levinstonian. Mm-hmm. Because I have heard so often, but we're from Evanston, and not just white, but black as well. We are different Yep. We do it differently. If we did it so differently, we'd be in a very different place. We have to understand that what happens, much like the early desegregation, we were at the front then. We were at the at the front of the line then doing something new. All these years, 60 years later almost, it's happening with reparations. We're at the front mm-hmm. of the line. But the people who have doubts have doubts for very valid reasons. Being at the front of the line doesn't mean you cross the finish line. Doesn't mean that, and I don't know that there's a finish line to cross. Or it means that finish line could continue to move. We're actually ready to step over it. And I'm not saying that there aren't steps and ways to improve and that we don't have to start at the beginning to get to a different place. But as Ronnie says, that finish line keeps moving. We never can get to that finish line And by the time in Evanston, as we are now with the Black population being at 16% and going rapidly down, Mm -hmm. by the time we get to that Fifth Ward school, it's not going to be the school that we had hoped would help with the neighborhood, with the children being able to walk to school in ways that they do. So I understand when people have a lack of patience because patience hasn't served anyone. So, Larisse, it's a really good point in also the sense that there was, a, I believe, a, a juxtaposition of really impatient people who wanted that change tomorrow, if not today. Well, because and, they wanted it 50 years ago and should have had it. So it's very hard to be patient when your rights are not being listened to, when your children are not getting equity, when the gap continues to expand. And when it is up, how can one be patient when you see others getting what you pray for, what you hope for, what you fight for? But there was also the countervailing force and perception that said, this too shall pass. You know, we haven't had, yeah, we haven't had a superintendent who's lasted very long lately. So, you know, how long are we going to have to do this stuff, whatever this stuff might be? 
just quickly, Ron, going back to that question of so where do you start? What do you do? The the other that that happened, and um, you were part of this, Ron, and and Mike was greatly responsible. So I had this evolving, slow at first, evolving trust with Denise and Al Kimbrough and lots of other black leaders within the school. And Mike Duval set up a, I don't know what it was, every other month, every third month dinner for me with black high school classmates of his, male classmates. It would be a phenomenal listening and learning opportunity for me. Bill Logan set up this monthly meeting with what he believed were the male elders of the Black community. I also met regularly with the Black Ministerial Alliance that at the time included Heisel Taylor, among others, who were extremely vocal leaders. And so for me, the most visceral thing that happened was not in those meetings. It was a talk at the Episcopal Church on Ridge. And I was providing them with a litany of things I had learned about race at ETHS. I said, one of the real horrors of what happened to students at ETHS was the counseling system, where counselor after counselor after counselor literally only needed to see the color of the student coming toward them and say, gee, I know you'd like to think about college, but it's not really for you. So I told that story. And when I was done speaking, this African-American male came up to me. He had to be at least 70 and just tears streaming down his face and said to me, you just spoke my experience. And it brought tears to my eyes. It was so affirming of if this man felt this, what did every kid who experienced it, what did their families feel, you know, and how many generations did it repeat itself? And that was the explicit stuff before it went underground and became subtle, right? In which the practices still continued, but were camouflaged to be hidden from quote unquote overt racism, but in truth, we're still overt. So when you are meeting in this church and this man walks up to you with tears streaming down his face, it has to affect you. And how do you go in the next day and bring something new and make change happen? And how, after that, does one make lasting change? Because that's what we need. You know, the day after going to that church, what... I hope I I did. I was probably not as systematic as I should have been, but I probably walked around that whole day or maybe for a week telling everybody I could that story. If I had to do it again, I'd wear more of my teacher hat and tell the story and say, what do you think we ought to do about it? So I want to be clear You know, I'm very thankful for the opportunities I had. I hope that 
not my work, but the work of the team that I was with, um, purposely moved the needle some. But honestly, when I look back, I think that what we did was absolutely necessary, but unfortunately, in many ways, quite insufficient. When you say that the work was necessary, what do you mean by that? What that means is we should have gotten more explicit policy changes in the ETHS board policy manual that protected some changes. For example, we got rid of teacher recommendations for how kids went to honors and AP. There may have been fewer counselors behaving in that way and really trying to sincerely not channel kids as overtly away from classes. But I thought then and now feel even more strongly that that didn't sufficiently challenge what might have been their own belief systems. Privately, I'm a counselor, and in my heart, I don't even know if I believe that's actually good for kids. I think what I used to be doing was better for kids because it wasn't putting them in a position where they would fail. I'm talking about their belief system, right? right? And so the whole issue of sustainability, of how you institutionalize changes and ensure that they stay, I don't think beliefs change just by challenging the beliefs. I, I think we have to change behaviors they have to both be held accountable for new practices, and they have to begin to believe in their hearts that these new practices are better than the old one. But there has to be that ongoing accountability. There has to be a community that embraces this and, and moves it forward. And not only a community that moves it forward, but continues to move it forward. Absolutely. It is work that doesn't stop, that simply right. because we feel that we've had some progress right. does not mean that we're done. And we're never done because kids keep coming through and they need the attention and they need the equity every day. What are your hopes for Evanston? There was this come by feeling in Evanston of aren't we special? We desegregated early. And aren't we all really good folks because of what we've done? Yes. And yes, a door got opened, but the desired results, at least desired by not the victims, the subjects of desegregation, were not rewarded in the ways they imagined rewards might look. One of the goals I held in front of people that I will tell you when I spoke to parent groups and they and if they were predominantly white, felt really uncomfortable, one of the goals I would talk about is we might get there if we look at the top 100 of the class rank of ETHS and saw an even distribution of black and white students through that 100. As it was, 
maybe we were only seeing 10 or 15 black kids at most in that top 100, always in the lower 50. But I think keeping your eye on the ball, keeping your eye on the prize all the time. And the efforts can't be either or. So it's not just about ensuring that teachers questioning practices in the classroom are more equitable. It's about attacking what is taught and how it is taught. It's about the social and emotional and mental health supports that all kids need, but in particular, kids who are facing historical adversities need to have sensitive adults and building sensitive peer groups that are supportive. I think it's really troubling your example about the Fifth Ward School and the diminishing demographics of uh, the Black population suggests issues that are very difficult. You know, if there's going to be reparations, then they ought to be successful. They ought to fulfill the promise that they've made. I know there will be controversy about whether or not it's a glorified housing subsidy or whether or not it's true reparations. Let those debates continue because it's worth having the money on the table, the money to go out the door, and the sense of always tinker to make it better and and fairer. If you had an opportunity to do it again, would you? Oh, my God, yes. Any and everybody I met during that time, I said it was the most special job I I could have ever imagined having. And there were not many places where the values that I believe that I hold in terms of equity and anti-racism and inclusivity, I felt like the community of Evanston was kind enough to give me a chance to practice that. And others were comfortable enough to not just follow my lead, but join in the lead and do that work. So, oh my God, if if I could go back and do it now with what I've learned during that time and since, wouldn't that be fun? It feels good to talk about race. And until we are doing that in a consistent and honest manner, the entitlement which boils into racism will never change. So thank you for having the courage to do it. Excellent. Great seeing you, enjoy. Take good care and happy new year again. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode featuring Dr. Alan Olson. Dr. Olson continues to contribute to education as a consultant and still resides in Evanston. We appreciate the overwhelming support as we engage in candid conversations about Evanston and its community. I'm Larise Bell, and for Ron Whitmore, we thank you for tuning into Evanston Rules. For more content, visit evanstonrules.com or find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions and wish to reach out to us, please do so by email at info at evanstonrules.com. Ron and I look forward to hearing from you. Listen to understand. <laughs>